All right, we're going to spend some time studying the Bible together. This is something we do every week because we believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. And so we're in a series right now. We like to study particular books one at a time. We're in a series right now called What to Do When the World Falls Apart. So if you have a Bible, you can open it to Daniel, What to Do When the World Falls Apart. We started this series by looking at instructions from the prophet Jeremiah to the exile, saying this is what to do. When our world falls apart, this is how to invest in Babylon. And then the book of Daniel unfolds, this is what it looks like. This is how they're actually living out the instructions that Jeremiah gave them. And we've talked every week about how First Peter 2 makes it clear that we also are exiles. And what that means is we're not really home yet. This is not our true home. There's a sense in which we should have ownership, we should love and invest in Babylon, in the world that we live in now, and that's what the instructions in Jeremiah 29 said, but we should also remember our citizenship is in heaven, as Paul says in Philippians 3. So this is not our true home. One of the issues that we'll struggle with living in Babylon, living not in our true home, is mysteries. It's things that we don't fully understand, things that are secrets, a mystery is a secret, that has yet to be unfolded to us. And so this week, we're looking at Daniel chapter 2, and we're calling it Don't Fear the Mysteries. Daniel chapter 2, the title is Don't Fear the Mysteries. We're going to have secrets, mysteries that are going to come up in our life. We're living with a lot of them right now. Basically, that means things we don't understand. Things that have been revealed to us, but they're secrets, they're mysteries, they're cloudy, they're hard for us to make sense of. And I want to encourage you, and I think Daniel 2 will encourage us, we don't have to be afraid. God can work through the mysteries. A particular mystery that I can remember being kind of fearful of was childbirth. Um, I've got three kids that are all grown-ups now, and I can remember going through a little bit of this stress again recently when our grandchild was born. But when my wife was pregnant with our first child, I remember being a little terrified childbirth, the delivery of a human baby, how this works even was a great mystery to me as a young, young man. I'd never really been around pregnant people. I was the youngest in my family. I didn't have a lot of, you know, cousins and aunts and good friends that were having children. Really, the only exposure I had as a young 20-something youth pastor was hearing young moms joke about how horrific it was, right? And that's basically all I knew. I just knew this is horrible. And I'm thinking, oh, no, my wife is going to go through this horrible thing. But something amazing happened. As I was fearing this mystery of childbirth, we enrolled in something called childbirth classes. Have you all ever heard of this? It's this fantastic service that the medical community does where they explain to you how it actually works. Now, some of it was more information than I wanted to know. I'll grant you that. But a lot of it put me at ease. Really, what was amazing for me as a follower of Jesus, as a believer in a creator God, I started to realize, oh, God designed this. Like, God's got this under control. Yes, we live under the curse. Genesis 3 is is clear. There's pain in childbirth and child rearing. There's pain in our work. All of that is clear, right? But but the original design of, of working and rearing children and delivering children, that's good. That's a good design. And God is in control of this. And so I want you to see a similar idea in our text here, that there are mysteries that can scare us, but Daniel repeatedly, this whole book is going to push us to recognize, no, we've got a creator God that's got this. Even if we don't understand all the details, even if we're waking up and reading the news and saying, what is going on? We have a God who ultimately is still king. Last week I used this phrase again and again, sovereign. 
and I feel bad. I have this personal rule when I preach. I, I don't like to use uncommon words in my sermons without explaining them, and I don't think I explained it. Uh, you probably figured it out from context, but sovereign means rule and authority. And so one of the major themes of Daniel is that God is sovereign. That means he's king. He's in charge of the universe. And all of us who think we're in charge of our little lives or other kings and leaders that think they're in charge really are serving a greater king who is sovereign, who is in control. So don't fear the mysteries. We're going to read from Daniel 2, and I'm going to read just a little bit to kind of get us started and then pray for us. I'm going to start with verses 1 through 3, and then I'm going to read verses 10 through 13. Let me put on the glasses before I do that. So Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Now let's skip down to verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. He was asking again and again, I want you to not only tell me what the dream means, but to tell me the dream. They say, there's no one on earth that can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed. Then they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Let me pray for us. God, we recognize that you are the revealer of mysteries, and so because of that, we do not need to be afraid. There is so much we don't know. There's so much we don't understand. But God, we entrust ourselves to you. We thank you that you are a God that reveals things to us in your word. And we pray that as we study your word, as we study this story from Daniel 2, that your Holy Spirit would meet us here. We believe this to be a supernatural event. We, we use our, our own brains and our logic and our reason to read and understand the text and the basic language here. But we need your Holy Spirit to make our hearts open to you because we're a rebellious people, God. And so, God, we're, will you meet us here? Will, will your spirit open our eyes and our hearts so that we would receive your truth? We pray that you would transform us, that you would shape us by your revelation, and that you would help us not to fear the mysteries in this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, summary is that Nebuchadnezzar, greatest king that's ever lived, has terrible dreams. They're waking him up. They're making it hard for him to sleep. It says he was disturbed. He was upset. And he comes to the sorcerers, astrologers, the, the wise men, the Chaldeans. And just as an aside, I said last week, uh, Chaldean is kind of a overall word for Babylonian culture. It also had a connotation of wise men. Because the Chaldeans, that was the great literature of that age, right? And so in certain times in history, later on, uh, Greek would be associated with philosophy and great learning. Well, at this time, Chaldean 
was associated with philosophy and literature and great learning and dream interpretation. So they have these different categories of all the wise men, all the people that could help them, right? You know, like today we might say he talked to the doctors and he talked to the mathematicians and he talked to the professors and he talked to the counselors and he talked to the psychiatrist. You know, like he just, he talked to all the wise men he could find from all the different schools of specialty, but none of them could really help him. And it made him furious and he wanted to kill them all. Um, which I, I don't recommend as a reaction when you're facing a mystery in your life. Um, so we're going to see three things unfold in the story. Number one, mystery reveals the strongholds of our flesh. We see this played out in the character of Nebuchadnezzar. Mystery reveals the strongholds of our flesh. When we're faced with a mystery, a secret, something we can't unlock, like a brick wall that we can't penetrate, it will reveal in us the strongholds of our own flesh, the, the places where we're addicted to our own strength, our own flesh, if you will. Second thing we'll see is that mystery reveals our relationship with God. It reveals our relationship with God. We'll see that play out in the character of Daniel and his friends. And then finally, through the dream itself and what it means, we see that mysteries reveal God himself, the person of God. And that's the truly good news that comes out of the story. So the first thing I want us to look at is the idea that mystery reveals the strongholds of our flesh. Now, as I talk about flesh throughout the scripture, that's contrasted with relying on God. And so flesh is more than just my skin. That's often how we use the term, right? In our day and age, we think about it as just like the skin, the, the part you touch. But flesh has a bigger meaning in the Bible. It means kind of like my natural strength. So it can even include my brains, right? It's like any strength, any gift, any natural humanness that you rely on, right? Some of you are good at organizing things. That would be the strength of your flesh. Some of you are really smart and good at memorizing things. That would be a strength of your flesh. Some of you are really good with people. That would be a strength of your flesh. Some of you are physically strong. That would be a strength of your flesh, right? And when you run up against something hard that you can't conquer with the strength of your flesh, that reveals the stronghold that that flesh has in your life. That reveals to you, oh, I've been completely relying on this. I'm going to have to go somewhere else. I'm going to have to draw on some other power besides me and the strengths that I was born with or the strengths that I've developed in my flesh. So here's a great cross-reference from Jeremiah 17.5. So remember, Jeremiah was the prophet that was speaking to the exiles from Jerusalem. Daniel's the guy in exile. Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 17. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man. Cursed. I feel like you have to say cursed when you're declaring a curse, right? Normally we'd say cursed, but cursed, right? It's a curse you're proclaiming. Cursed is the man who trusts in man, and listen to this, makes flesh his strength. Makes flesh his strength. Whose heart turns away from the Lord. Do you see that? So that kind of defines what flesh means biblically for us. It's a man trusting in man. Ladies, you're not exempt from this. It's a lady trusting in lady, right? It's like a human trusting in humans. That's really what it's saying here. A human being trusting in their own flesh. And the opposite of that is trusting in the Lord. It says that person that trusts in their flesh is cursed and they're turning away from the Lord. So mystery shows to us, man, I'm, I'm just trusting in me, right? It's a great opportunity. That's really what I'm trying to tell you. When you're backed up against a wall, when you're facing something difficult, something frustrating, that desperation is really good because it reveals the strongholds of our flesh. Nebuchadnezzar said, my spirit is troubled to know the dream. 
Then the Chaldean said to the king, verse 4 in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we'll show you the interpretation. Now, again, this is just, uh, I think Ruby's working on a degree in diplomacy, right? Is that right? Um, this is great diplomacy here, right? If you've got a really important person you're answering to, especially if they're the type that wants to cut your head off, say, O king, live forever. That's just a good way to answer them when you're faced with a difficult situation, but still that's not enough, right? That's not enough. They're kind of trying to lift up his flesh and say, oh, king, you're great. Oh, we hope you live forever. You're awesome. Uh, it says, too, this is a little aside. I don't want to spend too much time on this. It says they answer him in Aramaic. And what's really interesting here is in the original text of Daniel, there's a switch that takes place, and this, this uh, text begins to be written in Aramaic now. Um, Aramaic was the more universal language. It was really close to Hebrew. Um, it's actually the, the like variety of Hebrew or dialect that was spoken in first century Israel uh, at the time that Jesus was walking around. So it's probably what Jesus spoke, right? So their, their Bible texts would have still been in proper Hebrew, which is a little different. But they would have been speaking Aramaic, which is related, but this is more like the worldwide language. So this text switches now from Hebrew to Aramaic, and then it'll switch back to Hebrew at the end. Scholars don't really know why, but our best guess is there are portions that Daniel was saying, this is focused on you Hebrews, and then there was like broader portions that was like, this is for the whole world to hear and to see, and that's why they switched the languages back and forth. But anyway, they're talking to the king in the common language, oh, king, live forever, tell your servants the dream, we'll show the interpretation. And then there's this whole back and forth, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but they were saying, you just got to tell us the dream, and we'll tell you what it means. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. Now, we don't fully understand how much of this was his own test of them and seeing what they could figure out, and how much of it was like, he just didn't even remember it, right? Do you ever have that happen where you have a terrible dream, but you can't remember it, and it drives you nuts? That might have been part of it. We don't really know. We just know he's demanding, no, I'm not going to tell you the dream. You have to tell me the dream. And he even indicates that he believes that maybe they're going to lie to him if he tells them the dream. That's part of what he starts saying. Well, I think you're going to make stuff up if I tell you the dream. So I'm not even going to tell you the dream. So he's making it into this test. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands. That's a pretty total statement, right? Nobody, no flesh is strong enough to answer this demand. No man, no human, no flesh can do this. O king, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. Verse 11, the thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Man, verse 11 is really interesting. If you've read the Bible much, you know that this would be called irony, right? That is, verse 11 is saying something that we that know, the God of the universe, know the opposite is actually true. Normally, the gods don't live among flesh. Normally, that's not how it works. But we know the God who took on flesh and dwelt among us, John chapter 1. So that's a, that's a, a beautiful little hint at where this story is going. So they're like, nope, can't be done. They're coming to the end of their flesh. They're readily admitting it, but Nebuchadnezzar's not quite ready to admit it yet. And so we've got these kind of two characters demonstrating two different ways to deal with you've come to the end of yourself, right? You've come to the end of yourself. What do you do? Are you more like the wise men that are like, hey, this is not fair. Nobody can do this, right? You throw a temper tantrum. Or are you like Nebuchadnezzar who throws a different kind of temper tantrum and says, okay, I'll just kill all of you, right? They're both expressing frustration 
trying to control what they can control, right? Which is another sign that we're deep in the grips of the stronghold of our flesh because we just, we just keep running with it, right? Like, what can I do? What can I do? Nebuchadnezzar's like, I'm a king. I can kill everybody, right? And the enchanters are like, well, we can try to talk him out of it. We can keep saying the same thing. We can stall. We can buy time. We can try to tell him that this won't really work. Where do you go when you run out of the power of your flesh? What do you do? What's your compulsive behavior that you fall back into? This story helps kind of bring that up to the surface today. Um, One of the questions I want to ask is, what is the equivalent we have today of wise men and enchanters, of finding answers to the mystery of life? What's the equivalent we have today? Well, we have a lot of equivalents. As I said you know, earlier, we could call psychiatrists and professors and mathematicians and scientists, right? But I think the thing we go to most quickly is called Google, right? Y'all heard of this thing, the interwebs? You go to the computer, you're like, I have a question. I don't know the answer. Where do you run? You run to the computer. I grabbed a picture of the Google search bar. Um, and this is another aside, by the way, but if you haven't seen the documentary yet, The Social Dilemma, you should watch that documentary. Um, a large majority now of people that have de- de- designed the modern technology that we lean on are saying, hey, this is scary and out of control. And most of them say, I would never let my children use it. So anyway, just throw that out there to you. Um, but this is where we run. This is where we currently run for answers. We run to the computer. And I, I'm afraid we're doing it even more now because of our isolation, because of the COVID quarantines and all this. We're running more quickly. Um, but here's, here's the issue. We as a society are now in the perfect storm of having more data at our fingertips than ever before, but having less wisdom than ever before. Have you thought about that? Wisdom in Proverbs is, is defined as the fear of the Lord. Not like afraid running away kind of fear, but awe. God is amazing. Worshiping at God's feet. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Our current compulsive hunger for data that's not wisdom. That, that's something else, and it's, it's not healthy. So my question for you, are you, adwi- are you willing to admit your weakness? Are you willing to admit how the strength of your, fre- your flesh, the, whatever gifts that God has given you, your brains, your, your body, your charisma, whatever it is, your gifts, your skills, are you willing to admit that, yes, those are gifts from God, and I should use them for God's glory, but they're not enough? right? Do you see that balance? You don't throw them out. You don't say, oh, well, I'll never use my gifts again because they're not enough to unlock the mysteries of the universe. No, 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 no. You say, I've got to submit myself to God. God is king. He's the one in charge. And this mystery, this moment, this crisis of knowledge that I'm going through of not understanding uh, what's going on with our political system or not understanding what the sickness is that I have. And I go to the doctor and the doctor doesn't know either, right? or not understanding how to fix my relationship because I want to make it better, but I keep falling into these patterns that have been set since my childhood, or trying to fix things at work. I I can't fix that. Are you willing to recognize that being faced with that mystery, that secret, that, that shortfall of your own knowledge is an opportunity for you to recognize the strongholds that your flesh have in your life and say, my flesh is not enough. I need a God outside of my flesh. 
So I think this looks like two steps. Confess your reliance on your flesh, right? Don't throw it away. Don't say, I'll never use my flesh again. Just say, God, I've been relying too much on it. And then cry out to God. It's that simple. Here's my strength, right? Like, what does that look like for me? I'm a problem solver. What happens when I come up against a problem I can't solve? I freak out, right? And then I have to confess to God, God, man, I'm sorry. I'm just relying on me. I'm relying on my flesh, and it's not enough. I need you, right? Or I'm, 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 I'd say I'm healthier than the average middle-aged person. But as you get more middle-aged or more old, that health kind of, it, it dwindles, Right? <laughs> The older I get, the more my health is leaving me. And, and what do I do when that happens, right? What do I do when I have a nagging injury or I'm not strong enough to do something I used to be able to do? I freak out, right? I throw a temper tantrum, and then I have to stop and recognize I'm relying on this stronghold in my foot. I have to confess that. Lord, this body is not enough. I need you. I need you. A- another strength of my flesh, I'm, I'm pretty good at helping to connect people, um, COVID, where we're all completely disconnected, has made me have to say, God, I cannot do this, right? I cannot use my gift of connecting people. It's not working. I need you, God. What, what is it in your life? Where are you running up against a mystery that forces you to say, me is not enough. I am not enough. Don't say me is not enough. That's bad grammar. I am not enough, right? My strength, my gifts can't solve this problem. I need God. And you can whine like the enchanters and say, well, it's not possible. There is no God that would ever come down and help us with this sort of thing. Or you can be like Nebuchadnezzar and say, it's not possible for me to not rely on my flesh. I'm just going to have to kill everybody, right? Or you can take the Christian option. Say, God, my flesh is not enough. I need you. I need you. We cry out to him for help. Go back and read John chapter 1. He is the God who took on flesh and dwelt among us. And it says there in John 1, he gives us this wonderful opportunity to become children of God, children born not of the flesh, but born of God. All you have to do is trust in him. All you have to do is cry out to him, and he will give you new life by his grace. The next thing that we see as we transition into the life of Daniel or the response of Daniel is that mystery reveals our relationship with God. Mystery reveals our relationship with God, or lack thereof, with Nebuchadnezzar and his advisors. Um, And here are two applications, because we might get lost in the story a little bit here as we move through it. So two applications. Number one, call your friends to pray. That's what we see in Daniel's life. Call your friends to pray and pray. Number two, listen to God's revelation that he gives to you and worship him, right? Prayer and revelation, prayer and revelation, okay? So those are the two big areas of application in our own life. Let's look at it in verse 12. We'll pick up the story and see what Daniel does and how it reveals his, his uh, relationship with God. So the king was really angry. They're going to go kill Daniel and everybody else because the king was angry and very furious and commanded all the wise men of Babylon to be destroyed. So the decree went out. The wise men were about to be killed. They sought Daniel and his companions to kill them because he was a part of the team of wise men now. Verse 14, then Daniel replied with, prudence and discretion to Arioch. Okay, important little note here. One of the most beautiful things about the book of Daniel is the book of Daniel is sometimes referred to as apocalyptic literature. That means there are these dreams and visions that reveal the future and reveal what God is going to do, right? Mysterious stuff. So that's called apocalyptic, apocalypse literature. It's also seen as historic literature. It tells us history, right? Um, But it can also be seen as wisdom literature, 
right? We normally think of like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. It's more, more teaching style, right? It's telling us like with little Proverbs and, and little sayings and poems, this is how uh, wisdom works. But in Daniel, we see it lived out. This is kind of similar to what I was saying about Jeremiah says, exiles live like this. Daniel and his buddies show us what it looks like, right? So in a sense, this is also a type of wisdom literature, and it's showing us what prudence and discretion and wisdom look like. So we replied to the captain of the king's guard who'd come out to kill the wise men of Babylon. Verse 15, declared to Arioch, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Um, so he's asking for more time. He's saying, I think I can do this. Will you give me more time? Verse 17, then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, his buddies. That was my first application, right? Call your buddies and pray. Say, we need to pray. We need to get praying. This is beyond us, right? Don't be Nebuchadnezzar that says, I'm just going to kill everybody. Don't be the wise men that say it's hopeless because the gods never communicate with us. There's this vast chasm that can't be breached. No, pray. Call out across the chasm and ask God to intervene. Call your friends and pray. Verse 18, he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. So Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Mercy. Seek mercy from God. Let me explain why this little phrase, seeking mercy from God, is so important. Christians are a people who believe that on our own, by our own flesh, we cannot be saved, we cannot be whole, we cannot be right, we cannot live justly, we cannot love our neighbors. We need God's mercy for any of that to take place. And so the good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is though we deserved punishment, Jesus took it for us. He lived the life we should have lived. He lived out wisdom, like Daniel. He showed us how to live, but then that's not where it ended. He actually took our place. He died on the cross for us as a sacrifice of atonement, taking our sins upon his own shoulders, but he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave promising that God truly is a God of mercy that has conquered sin and death. And so this drives all prayer. All prayer, if you're calling out to the God that's separate from us because of our sin, that's across the chasm, that doesn't dwell among flesh, you're calling out in hope of his mercy, in hope that he is gracious. Let's see how he answers. Then, verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. What does this mean? He answered him. He gave him a vision. He's like, here it is. I'm I'm answering because of my mercy and grace. And this is really cool. Remember this phrase, I've used it before, life is a musical, right? When I was a a newlywed, my wife tried to get me to watch musicals. I hated them. I was like, this is not real life. Later on, I had to repent as a growing Christian because I realized, but life should be a musical, right? We should be bursting out in song. And Daniel shows us this. Verse 20, Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we have asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. I want you to think of what it was like to be Daniel and his buddies right now. 
Um, these guys had been through trauma. They'd seen the greatest army in the world march through town and kill the people they loved. They were kidnapped. They were moved uh, nine hours away to the other side of the world. Um, these guys knew trauma. And in the midst of that trauma, they continue to call out to a God of mercy, and they worship him. Uh, there's a pastor named Daniel Noriega that wrote this in, a, in another book on healing. And he said, we worshiped our way into this mess, and we're going to worship our way out of it. And that's what we see lived out here in the life of Daniel. You worship your way out of the mess, right? Because we go deeper and deeper into this mess of our sinful world because we're worshiping the strongholds of our flesh. We're worshiping our gifts. We're worshiping idols. We're worshiping, worshiping false powers in this world. And once we realize that and confess that, we're going to have to worship our way back out by calling out to God, praising him, seeing and saying how great and merciful he is. And we see that again lived out in the lives of Daniel and his companions. Verse 24, therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went and said to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. Do you like how that's worded, right? Like finally the answer is here, and it's Daniel and his God. But Arioch's like, hey, king, I have solved the problem for you. Are you ready, king? I've got the solution for you setting himself up as a winner. Verse 26, the king declared to Daniel, whose name was also Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I've seen and its interpretation? Important answer from Daniel. Look at this, verse 27. Verse 27, Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, no enchanters, no magicians or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. Isn't that an interesting first answer? Wouldn't you be like eager to get the answer out if you were Daniel? Like, I got the answer from God. The king is asking me. He wants to kill everybody. The king asks me, all right, can you give me the answer? And he says, no, no one can. That seems like a very dangerous delay, right? But he's pushing the king to recognize what he's already recognized, that God is God. That God is the true king. Look at verse 28. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the vision of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. He's, he's even drawing Nebuchadnezzar into it personally, right? No, nobody, nobody can reveal these things, but God can. And guess what, king? God is messing with you. God is talking to you. God gave you this dream. Isn't that beautiful? He's pushing all the glory to God, and then he's, he's inviting Nebuchadnezzar into the story too. And Nebuchadnezzar, you're caught up in this glory of this God who's way greater even than you are. Um, what are the applications of this? Again, we see the beauty of Daniel living out true wisdom, which is awe of God. Proverbs says, the fear of of Yahweh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Daniel is living that out. He has awe. He sees God as merciful. He sees God as sovereign, as the true king over the universe. This is the kind of relationship that God has. Tremper Longman has this great phrase about wisdom and how it really works in the Bible. Wisdom is not a concept to be learned. 
but a relationship to be enjoyed. Do you hear that? Wisdom is not a concept to be learned, but a relationship to be enjoyed. Now, that doesn't mean there are no concepts to be learned. It doesn't mean there are no facts, no data. We want you to actually read the, the contents and the concepts of the Bible. We want you to read Proverbs, but at its, at its root, it's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. It's a relationship with God. It's seeing him as merciful and close to you in Jesus that is going to allow you to actually have wisdom in this absolutely crazy broken world. The world is on fire. The world has fallen apart. What do we do when the world falls apart? We, we go deeper into our relationship with God. So he's, he's the only one I can trust. Everything else is nuts. I'm going to trust in Jesus, and I'm going to call out to him as the true God who can save me. So really two steps in this. Guys, please don't think. Dave says this kind of thing a lot, so it's not really important. I've heard it before. It is so important. Call your friends to pray. And read your Bible. Listen to the revelation that God gives you. Now, there's a little danger with this text in that God gives Daniel a vision in the middle of the night. And a lot of us can get off on this rabbit trail of, you know what? It's great that God's given me this full revelation here, but I'd really rather have a vision. So I'm just going to set this aside and wait for dreams and visions. I really want to encourage you not to do that. I believe that God can do that if he wants to because he can do whatever he wants, right? That's the definition of sovereign. God can reveal to you things. He can give you impressions to go talk to a friend. That happens. I believe the Holy Spirit moves in those ways. But don't neglect the revelation he's already given you. He's given his revelation. Read it. Pay attention. Listen. Pick up the phone. Answer his call. Listen to what God has to say. So, Two, two big and beautiful things we see lived out in Daniel and his friends. Call your friends to pray. Listen to the revelation. And then wrapped up in that is that relational worship, right? Remember, life is a musical. You don't just listen coldly in a sterile room. You worship God. God, your word is good. Thank you. That's what we see in Scripture. It's all, it's all tangled up, reading and worshiping. I grabbed a picture of someone reading the Bible what I want you to think is that he's smiling. I don't know if he's, he's kind of blurry in the picture. He's smiling though, okay? Um, and what I want you to get from that is listening to God's revelation in his word should always be joined with worship, love, adoration for God. God, you are good. To use the language of this text, God, you are merciful. You're the God who answers prayers. Um, Dr. Henry Cloud is a Christian psychology that's written a ton of books, and I've listened to a lot of his podcasts on leadership. And they've been really helpful because um, basically he's a psychiatrist, psychologist that, that is kind of a, an expert in helping leaders overcome their dysfunction, right? So I need that to know how to lead better. Um, it's been really helpful for me, but I, I find this weird thing that happens sometimes where I listen to his stuff, and it's kind of like it's, it's mostly law, right? And not enough gospel. It's like, this is what I should do. And sometimes I walk away going like, yeah, but I stink. I can't do that, right? <laughs> like, I'm not that good. Like, I listen to his stuff. I'm like, I wish I could do that. I can't do that. But I listen to a podcast from him. I keep listening to him. I listened to a podcast from him this summer. And he was saying, now more than ever, it's important for us to recognize that the most important, for us, important thing for us to do as leaders is to go deeper into our relationship with God. 
That was, that was so good and such a good reminder. He was talking in the context of COVID and all the craziness going on in the, Lord, in the world. This is this guy who works with Fortune 500 CEOs. He's always kind of talking to the rich and famous and advising them on important things. And he's like, really the most important thing to me is spending time alone with God, listening to God talk to me, praying, loving him, receiving his love for me in the gospel. That's the most important thing in crazy times like this. And I want you to see that as, as well. All right, the last thing that we see then is in the actual interpretation of the dream, we see that mystery reveals God himself. Mystery reveals God himself, the person of God. Now, I'm going to give you some explanation of what this vision entails, but I also want to kind of give a teaser that coming up in chapter 7, there are going to be more dreams and visions where Daniel's going to give more kind of future projections, and he actually has a lot of parallels with this chapter. So he's going to give us more details in chapter 7 than he does here. This is just kind of a general, like, um, there's just some big ideas in this vision. So we're not going to go real deep into, like, what everything means. We're just going to skim the surface as Daniel does when he gives the interpretation here. So mystery reveals God himself. And here's a good New Testament cross-reference for this, okay? Cross-reference from the New Testament before we look at the Daniel section is Colossians 2.2. Paul prays for all believers, that's you and me included, to enjoy the full riches of assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery. So Paul prays that all of us, you and me, those that know Jesus would know the full riches of the full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery. And then he gives more detail. What is that mystery? Which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul says the ultimate mystery is Christ himself. In him is hidden all wisdom, all knowledge. So Paul is praying for you and for me. I'm praying for us that we would know that true mystery which is hidden in Christ himself. So let's pick up explanation in Daniel 2.36. Daniel starts to actually tell us what it means. He says, this was the dream. Now we'll tell you, king, the interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making your rule over them all. You are the head of gold in this dream. So I've got a picture here of the uh, statue that Nebuchadnezzar dreams of. He dreams of this giant statue and there's a head of gold. Picture now. Picture now. Is it there? Is the picture there? There it is. All right. And so there's a head of gold. There's chest and arms of silver. There's a torso and thighs of brass or bronze. Then there are legs of iron and then there are feet of iron and clay. You've ever heard this phrase, this cliche that a great leader had feet of clay? This is where it comes from. Great, strong, and powerful, yet not as strong in the feet, and he kind of topples. Well, this stone comes and tumbles the entire statue, hits its feet of clay mixed with iron. So here, Daniel is beginning to explain, well, what does that weird statue mean? What does it symbolize? He says, the head of gold is you, Nebuchadnezzar. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar likes this. This is kind of seems like the move that the earlier guys were like, oh, king, live forever, right? Daniel seems to be following in that train. Um, but we believe this is actually what it means. The first part is Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, this great kingdom. It's like the most glorious. It's known as one of the greatest empires that the world has ever known, right? We still look back on it in that way. So he symbolizes the greatest, the flashiest 
of the kingdoms. Another interesting thing here is the language that Daniel is using reflects the language of Daniel or of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 says that the job of humanity is to be kings and queens of creation and to have dominion over all the birds and animals in the earth. Isn't this interesting? So even in Daniel's clarity that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't believe in his God and isn't living the way he he should live, Daniel respects the image of God in Nebuchadnezzar and says, there's a sense in which you're fulfilling what God has called all humanity to fulfill, right? And this is just a great model of wisdom of prudence. When you're talking with your friend that doesn't believe in Jesus, you can recognize the good and the beauty in them, the ways that they are made in the image of God, the ways that they're living out what God has designed humans to live. That doesn't mean you never give them any bad news, right? But you got you to gotta recognize the good of what God has put in them. And that's what we see Daniel doing throughout the story in Nebuchadnezzar. He'll, he'll definitely disagree with Nebuchadnezzar. He'll definitely challenge Nebuchadnezzar as well. But here we see him saying, yeah, you're You are golden, and you're living out what humanity was made for in your dominion. Verse 39, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, um, after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these. And as you saw, the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. As the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. We'll stop there for just a second. Put your finger on verse 44. We'll come back to it in a minute. So most commentators, most scholars think You're starting out with the Babylonian empire of gold. Next empire, the silver in this section of the statue. Uh, The silver represents the next empire and the next set of kings and kingdoms, which would have been the Medo-Persian empire. This one comes in at the end of Daniel's lifetime. He sees some of these kings. And then the next section, uh, the bronze would have been the great Greek empire, right? And then after that, the iron would have been the Roman empire. And then the feet, the mixture of feet, A lot of scholars, again, scholars disagree on this stuff, and we'll look at more details as we get into chapter 7. But a lot of scholars believe that that then mixed empire at the bottom is basically the world we live in now. It's like the leftovers of the Roman Empire, this weird mix of greatness and brokenness, and it's not really totally unified. Like, that's that's the civilization we live in now. Again, all scholars kind of disagree on some of these things, but that's the way I've seen it uh, most clearly portrayed. But again, I don't... I don't think naming which empire is which is the main thing here, right? What's the main thing? Well, what's the end of the story? Where, where does this vision end? Do you remember? We'll, we'll, we'll look at it. Verse 44. What does it say in verse 44? And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. He's saying, yeah, they're great kingdoms of men. And man, Nebuchadnezzar, you got this gold shiny kingdom. It's awesome. You're great. Pat you on the back. Good for you, right? But there's an ultimate forever kingdom that is coming. There's something permanent that will come and it will be set up 
by God. Verse 45, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, bronze, clay, silver, and, and gold, broke all of it. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. He's saying that the God of the universe is cutting out a stone. It looks rough. It looks natural. It doesn't really compare to this statue that's well sculpted and beautiful, but it mows it all down. And it's God setting up a forever kingdom. It's something that looks humble, that's not as glorious as a statue, but it will grow and grow, and it'll become a great mountain, and it'll become the permanent rock of salvation, the kingdom of God itself that shall never be destroyed. Daniel says that's the next kingdom that's coming, and it's a kingdom that will destroy all earthly kingdoms. Look at how Nebuchadnezzar responds then. Verse 46, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel. Paying homage is basically like, oh, you're awesome, you're great, right? Like he's bowing down to him. Uh, Imagine this, in our culture, we don't do this, you know, normally we do handshakes or now, you know, elbow bumps or whatever. Um, but then you see this in other cultures where there's bowing and where people uh, show more physical ways of honoring another person. Well, this is that to the extreme. He's bowing down. Uh, it says he commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly, your God is the God of God. So just a little aside here, this is the only time when someone is bowed down to that the person says, no, 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 don't bow down to me because I'm not God, right? Only time except for Jesus, right? Jesus accepts people bowing down to him and worshiping him. He accepts that worship, which is one of the most beautiful proofs of the deity of Christ in the New Testament. You know, we're always looking for like a proof text where Jesus says, I am the Trinity, you know, like we want it to be worded in our modern language, but he accepts worship as Yahweh. And he always is saying he's the fulfillment of these Old Testament passages. Well, here then, that drives us to say, well, why did Daniel accept the bowing from King Nebuchadnezzar? Well, listen to the words of Nebuchadnezzar. It's clearly put in cultural context. He might have been bowing, but he didn't think that Daniel was God. Daniel had already clarified, I'm not the revealer. God's the revealer. And Nebuchadnezzar gets the message. Nebuchadnezzar says, truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. If you've been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors, many great gifts, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king and he appointed Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. So Daniel stays in tight in the king's palace, the king's court. He's now the leader of leaders over all the wise men of Babylon. He's been elevated to this high position because Nebuchadnezzar sees that his God reveals mysteries to him. Now, as the story unfolds, it's pretty clear that Nebuchadnezzar didn't have a complete conversion to the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of true wisdom, right? I think maybe some of that might come later, but at this point, next story, next week, we'll see, okay, we're not sure if he has real true faith yet, but he does recognize that at least Daniel's God is like the best of the other gods. At least he's adding this God into his, you know, pantheon of other gods. At least that is happening and Daniel's being elevated and Daniel now has greater influence 
in the king's court. And notice Daniel brings in his buddies, brings in his faithful buddies who are also now given important promotions. Um, So how does this reveal God himself? Well, again, we see that this thing that man didn't build, but non-human hands cut out, this rock is not human, right? This is kind of hearkening back to what the enchanters said earlier, that man, no, no human, no flesh could do this. Well, in the dream, there's this non-flesh intervention where this rock cut out not by human hands comes in and mows down the statue. This rock then grows into the greatest kingdom, the kingdom of God that lasts forever. So this is clearly in symbolic ways, right, that can be a little confusing for us as modern people, but clearly pointing to the kingdom of God. And what's beautiful is we see an echo of the language of Jesus. Luke chapter 20, uh, there's a parallel in Matthew, but in Luke chapter 20, uh, the Jewish leaders are fighting against Jesus's authority. They see very clearly that Jesus is claiming to be Yahweh, claiming to be the son of God. They're pushing back like, what gave you this authority? Who put you in charge? Jesus tells some parables and then Jesus ends with this. He quotes Psalm 118 to them. Psalm 118 clearly says that Yahweh is our savior. And Yahweh is this great rock that we can rely on. And Jesus quotes it here. Luke chapter 20, verse 17. Jesus looked directly at these people and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's quoting Psalm 118. Jesus is saying, he's the fulfillment of Yahweh as the great rejected yet true cornerstone of humanity, of life, of salvation. Jesus is saying that's who he is. He's identifying himself with the Yahweh Savior of Psalm 118, the God of the Old Testament. And then he goes on, Luke 20, 18, and everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What is Jesus saying? He's referring to, this passage in Daniel 2. He's saying, you know what Psalm 118 is about? Psalm 118 is God being the rejected true cornerstone. And, And what does that great true God cornerstone of Psalm 118 do? Well, in Daniel 2, it crushes the great kingdoms of men. Whoever falls on those stones, right? In, in the Daniel image, the stone rolls in and this thing falls on it. It gets crushed to pieces. It smashes it to bits. That's what Jesus is saying. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm the rock. I am the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is claiming to be. Jesus is saying he's the kingdom of God. He's the rock of God of the Old Testament that will defeat all the other kingdoms. The kingdom is initiated when Jesus came and lived a perfect life, he, he became what humanity was supposed to be. Jesus showed us true dominion in the way that he showed justice and love and kindness and obedience to God's law. Jesus exhibited true wisdom, true dominion. He was the true image of God, right? Humanity, we're made to be the image that's set up, but we failed to do it. We spent too much time you know, gold plating ourselves and trying to look flashy. And he says, no, the stone of the true king is going to crush our false images. And we can either repent and find mercy in him, or we can keep fighting and get crushed to bits. And that's the offer that's extended through Jesus and the same kind of offers that Daniel will extend to Nebuchadnezzar 
in the Old Testament stories of Daniel. We can, in our pride, say, no, no, I want to I depend on the strongholds of my flesh. I want to polish my golden image. Or we can submit and say, no, God, you are God. You are king. And allow his kingdom to grow and to become the, the one that sets the standard. So a couple of applications and we'll finish. I know I've gone long today. Verse 47, like Daniel, we are called to reveal the revealer of mysteries. Verse 47, the king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Nebuchadnezzar says, I see that you've revealed the mystery and that shows me that your God is the true revealer of mysteries. That's our job, just like Daniel. Our job is to reveal the God who is the revealer, right? One of my favorite quotes for this is uh, one poor beggar showing other poor beggars where to find bread, right? There's a sense of like, I'm in need, you're in need. God's the revealer. God's the provider. It's not me. So the sense that we reveal is pointing to the true revealer, right? The sense that we feed is pointing to the true bread of life. That's what we see Daniel doing, and that's a model for us as well. It's not, it's not me. I'm struggling, but Jesus is my only hope. Run to Jesus. He will reveal the mysteries to you. So we are to reveal the revealer of mysteries. Verse 44, if you trust in Jesus as king, just as the rock not made by human hands, Jesus is that rock. If you trust in that rock, then you and I are a part of the kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Do you see that? We are a part of a new eternal kingdom that's being built. When we see civil unrest in society, we can get all worried because things that we've built or our friends have built are being destroyed. When we see the markets drop, we can be all worried because we say, my retirement is being destroyed. When we see death and decay in our own bodies, we can be all works like it's being destroyed. But Jesus says, no, if you trust in me, you're part of an eternal kingdom that will never be destroyed. A forever kingdom. Are you investing in what is permanent? And then finally, how does this work? Because this is a kind of violent image, right? Here I'm saying we're to be like Daniel. We're going to reveal God. And this revelation says, well, God's just a boulder coming in to kill everybody, right? (laughs) Like, is that that what we are to aspire to be? How does does Jesus live this out? And I want to really encourage you to spend a lot of time in 1 Peter 2 and 3. 1 Peter 2 and 3 highlights, emphasizes what it is to live in a world of suffering. And it talks in chapter 2 about Jesus being the cornerstone and we are also living stones, right? So it has this whole stone imagery. We're also the stones. And he gives us specific instructions in 1 Peter 3. He says, suffer, yes, but suffer for doing good. Don't suffer selfishly. I don't want to see you suffering and me suffering, fighting for ourselves, fighting for our kingdom. If we're going to suffer, let's suffer following Jesus. Let's suffer as Jesus did, suffering for others, serving others. And as we do that, we're we're participating in what Jesus started. We are his followers. We become a part of this rock snowball that's destroying all the other kingdoms of the world. We begin being a part of what Jesus is doing, as Paul says in Colossians, filling up what is lacking 
in Christ's affliction, in our own flesh, in our own suffering, we're joining in the suffering of Jesus as we deliver that suffering to the world. And Peter says, as you suffer, then be ready to have an explanation for why you have hope. And that why you have hope as you suffer serving other people is Jesus. That's the reason for the hope that is within us. That's the explanation because God saved me because God is merciful. Jesus died for me. And because of that, I'm willing to suffer for others. As we do that, then we're living out what it means to not fear the mysteries ourselves. Instead of being like the enchanters that throw up our hands and say, well, nobody can figure it out. Life is terrible, right? The gods are separate and they'll never reveal it. Instead of being like Nebuchadnezzar that says, I'm angry, I'm going to kill everybody because of it. Instead of that, we're like, we're like Daniel who, who presses in and by our faith in the mercy of God reveals God as the one we don't have to be afraid of because he gives us life in Christ. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you for the salvation we have through Jesus, as we see these, these crazy visions, Lord, help us to see that these are messages to us now, that in a world of political brokenness, in a world of sexual brokenness, in a world of economic brokenness, in a world of medical brokenness, you are the true revealer of mysteries. And you are building an eternal kingdom that the kingdoms we are building can't last forever. But as we invest in you, as we serve others in your name, we're building things that can last. We're a part of your eternal kingdom that can never be destroyed. Give us, give us hope, Lord. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.